FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark in the great state of Delaware. I'm Bill Humphrey and thanks for listening. The following episode was recorded on July 24th, 2017 and produced by me at my studio in Newton, Massachusetts. This week, Rachel, Jonathan, and Paul joined me to discuss total U.S. student loan forgiveness and universal dental care. All that and more is coming up on Arsenal for Democracy. Arsenal for Democracy is available for download on Wednesdays at arsenalfordemocracy.com and from iTunes. We air the show in Delaware on 91.3 FM and stream it from wvud.org on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Follow us on Twitter at AFD Radio or like us on Facebook. It's Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Uh, joining me again in studio this week is Jonathan Cohn. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Joining us again on the line from Boise, Idaho is Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me again. And uh, returning to the program for a second time, uh, fellow UD graduate, uh, Paul Blessed, a journalist, is joining us to talk about uh, some of these topics we've got on, on tap for this week. Hi, Paul. Hey, thanks for having me on. So the first thing we want to talk about is a popular subject with our uh, fan base and peer group, uh, which is the topic of student loan debt in the United States and specifically uh, what it might take to just cancel it all out. Um, so we're going to be looking at kind of what the total debt situation is adding up to in this country, uh, how much it might cost to cancel that out, what that might look like, uh, how politically feasible that kind of thing is, uh, various angles on this. Um, but let's get into it. Uh, Jonathan, there's been a couple recent news stories that have really, again, highlighted this mm-hmm. ongoing situation with the student loan uh, burden in this country, uh, one from Trump and one from one of these companies. Uh, walk us through those two stories. Yeah, so the one thing that's been in the news recently, or maybe kind of a little recently, but a couple of months ago, when Trump released his first budget, Uh, recently, uh, he planned to completely eliminate the public service student loan forgiveness program. Uh, It wouldn't really ultimately save a whole lot of money. Uh, It would would be just saving $27 billion over the next decade. But of course, it would harm people. And that's the ultimate purpose of doing so. Uh, And it would basically end that for loans issued July 1st, 2018 or later, except those issued for people who are like in the midst of current study. The Public Service Student Loan Forgiveness Program is about is 10 years old. It was created uh, in 2007. That would have been when Democrats took back uh, Congress after the 2006 elections. And it says that if loans can be forgiven after, um, after 10 years of on-time payments, and if someone's working for an employer deemed to be serving the public good. So that means let's say local, state, and federal government agencies, as well as nonprofits. And the number of people taking advantage of this program has actually gone up quite significantly uh, over the past few years. Some of that might have to do with the kind of with the recession as well as just the growth of student loan debt in general that makes that program a more attractive option, um, or possibly just as well as advertising of it, since there were only twenty about twenty five thousand people taking advantage of it. Uh, in 2012 to over 500,000. I think you've discounted the strong possibility that millennials are civically minded generation of people (laughs) who are just truly awesome individuals serving the public good. Um, All right. So that's that the this this budget proposal. I mean, it's not it doesn't seem like a lot of money that they're going to actually save, but they're going to cause a lot of hardship for a lot of people. Exactly. Which is the story of the Trump budget. Exactly. It's, it's a kind of a countless, like, time and time again that you'll see with the Republican proposals that they're not really about saving money. 
They're just about inflicting economic pain on people. Um, now, one of the things that happened under the process that got the Affordable Care Act passed was that uh, uh, President Obama passed one of his few measures that was aimed at his enthusiastic student base that had gotten him elected in the first place, and that was basically trying to federalize a lot of the student loan mm-hmm. process, move it away from some of the really uh, predatory lenders, but obviously there's still various like outstanding loans with private vendors and other options. I think some people still take out loans, other types of loans maybe. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, some of those companies are really pretty sketchy, shady yeah, enterprises. Uh, they're also in the news recently. Yeah, the, so what, what's the deal there? And, yeah, and this was just in the New York Times uh, kind of over the weekend, I believe, that it has to do with faulty paperwork from a lot of the uh, these companies. So particularly, so the National Collegiate Student Loan Trusts own a large percentage of the private student loan debt. And uh, as you noted, in the grand scheme of of student loan debt, it is predominantly federal kind of public loans as opposed to private ones. But they they do still exist, and it's large monetary, like, and gross, just not relatively. But they, and they're quite predatory in their practices when they want to get money back from someone. The problem is, is akin to what we had seen around a decade ago during the mortgage crisis, is that they have terrible paperwork, and then following the have the chain of title about who owns the debt, that these uh, kind of the student loan companies or the kind of the owners of the debt can't prove that they actually have are the ones who own it. So there have been a number of cases recently of judges just dismissing their claims. So the, the debt magically goes away for those people exactly. who fortunately or unfortunately happen to be having these loans with these sketchy companies that weren't doing the paperwork right. Uh, did it say, like, do people know? Are they getting notified if they if their loan has disappeared? So, or? Yeah, so it would be because of specific lawsuits that that would happen. That if you had the company is targeting a specific individual, and if they end up in court and then be, through the court proceedings, that you'd have to prove that you do have the title on this debt that you're trying to get somebody to pay you back for, and they can't prove it. I wonder, though. I mean, that's always a hassle if people have to go individually to that's, court. Yeah. And, so, you know. and, and that's part of the, the issue with a lot of this is that it, even if when, you, when, when it's wiped, it's a relief. And the New York Times piece, which I would highly recommend reading, shows a number of cases where it is a lifesaver for people. But it's a hassle, the entire pro- process. And it, it just speaks to one general political principle of, of how it's really important to make things to kind of reduce the unnecessary paperwork that people have to deal with. Yeah, the simpler the better um, politically winning formula. Uh, obviously, I mean, this has gotten to a, a huge crisis situation in, in aggregate terms uh, for sure. And, you know, we can talk later about kind of how much it's increased. But, like, suffice it to say that we're now talking about uh, you've got stats here of like 17 million borrowers under the age of 30. Yeah. Uh, 1.4 trillion in student loan debt total. 44 million Americans. Yeah. Uh, other than home mortgages, it's the biggest mm-hmm. uh, form of debt in the country right now. Um, you know, individually, that works out to uh, some some pretty high numbers. But even those, I always you always hear the average numbers that to me seem kind of low relative to what I'm hearing. Like there were. Uh, you got some other figures in your notes here uh, that that among respondents with some college or certificate, yeah. they've got eight thousand dollars on average in in or median rather outstanding student debt. Um, uh, associate degree it's a little bit higher. Bachelor's degree the median is nineteen thousand one hundred and sixty two dollars. Now, uh, Paul, uh, you have a bachelor's degree. Um, what what are you looking at in terms of student loans debt these days? Um, so I. I had sort of a uh, a long path to getting my degree. Um, I went to a school called Wilmington University right out of college. Uh, that's in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, right out of high school. It, it's a it's a private school, um, but it's run by adjuncts basically. So, like paying for classes there is about as much as a public university. Um, so, you know, I got relatively lucky with this. I, I did go for like half a semester to a a private university in Pennsylvania that costs a lot of money. And I, I do have like $3,000 in student loans from them. But, it, you know, for the most part, I went to public or, you know, public. Uh, I, I graduated from University of Delaware. So, you know, I went to low cost schools for the most part. And I'm looking at over $50,000 in student debt. I lived at home 
uh, for, you know, the entire time I was in college as well. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, even at public schools, it's, it's pretty expensive. And yeah. And uh, like I went to UD because it was the least expensive one that I got into, but you know, even by the time that, that I was applying, uh, you know, around the time of the recession, um, like there were other schools where if you were going out of state to a public school, you know, that it used to be much more affordable that, that it was like, it was just out totally out of the price range that I could even mm-hmm. think of affording, you know, or I would have ended up with some sort of similar level of debt. Um, also, uh, you were, you had told me, Paul, that like you didn't, you weren't getting scholarships. You weren't getting help from your parents on that. Like, that's obviously, I think, a factor as well for a lot of folks, even if they're going to, yeah. you know, totally legit schools, and mm-hmm. that's not the issue, right? Yeah. So the the process for me was was really uh, it, it was it was sort of demoralizing every single year that I had to apply for public loans because my parents had really bad credit, um, and so I, they would have to apply for a Parent Plus loan and then get rejected for that, and then I would have. I would get a loan because they got rejected from having, you know, the ability to, to help me pay out my loans. So, um, you know, it, it, it has a higher interest rate, I think, than a regular Parent PLUS loan, but it's basically, you know, all on me uh, because my parents weren't able to, you know, help me out with a, they, they didn't have, the, a, you know, good enough credit. They wanted to, but, you know, they weren't able to. Yeah, I mean, and that also speaks to the paperwork issue that that Jonathan was referring mm-hmm. to. Um, Rachel, I'm seeing here in the statistics that uh, people with a master's degree, the median debt thirty six thousand dollars. Professional or doctoral degree, it's a hundred thousand uh, dollars. I don't know which all degrees you have. You've said that you've paid off your loans, which is, I guess, not that surprising because you're also older than all of us. But um, what you know, did, what was at the peak of it? How much did you owe? Um, so when I graduated in 2008, um, I, I think I had about $13,500 um, in student loan debt. Uh, I was extremely lucky. Um, I went to a small private liberal arts college in Idaho, and um, they had just piloted a scholarship that paid tuition for um, students who uh, achieved GPA and um, ACT, SAT scores of a certain tier, and they would continue to pay full tuition, unless uh, the grade point average dropped below 3.0, I believe. So I was extremely lucky. The The, the scholarship program does not exist anymore because I doubt it could stay solvent um, for a very long time, especially with 2008, with the, with the um, economic crisis that happened then. Um, so I was definitely lucky. I only had to pay for fees, and I did live on campus despite going to school in my hometown because I thought it was really important to have that college socialization experience. So I did end up with a little bit more debt than I would have had to had I stayed at home. But I think 13 and a half, I got off pretty easy. Yeah, the uh, average for the class of 2016 across all Mm -hmm. kinds of degrees was $37,172. Um, which is just, I mean, that's, that's so much more in debt alone than many people, uh, many of these people's parents paid to go to college, you know, mm-hmm. back in the day. Now, obviously, uh, both of you, you have raised a lot of different angles uh, in, in the course of your, your narratives on this. Um, Jonathan, uh, what jumps out at you from the things that they've been saying? You have a lot, you know, yeah. a lot of so angles one, noted here as well. So one thing that, Shakri, back when we were talking about let's say, of public university, of public universities, is one major factor in this, particularly with the spikes in tuition recently, is a kind of a massive disinvestment in public higher education on the state level that happened, particularly around the time of the kind of the financial crisis and the economic recession, though it might have been happening before then in places as well, where you have about about states spending about three thousand less per student in public higher education, which almost directly translates to the tuition increases. And there had been, a, there had been a, even a study on, from Demos uh, a couple of years ago looking at what's the, what, what's the cause of rising tuition costs. And they found that about almost 80% of it could be attributed to just public disinvestment with some of the rest that you'll have administrative, administrative bloat happening, part of it, and then you'll have kind of capital expenditures be part of it, but the bulk of it is just that states are not investing in public higher education to the level that they they did in recent history. 
that is certainly, I think, getting less attention because it's so much more of an obviously political decision. Although, I mean, mm -hmm. some of it's related to like they have a lot of states have balanced budget requirements yeah. and we're getting massive cuts from the federal level due to things like the sequestration and the mm -hmm. other rounds of cuts before then, you know. But this is what the face of austerity looks like in the United States. But as you said, this was also going on well before then, too, yeah. um, that a lot of these private uh, a lot of these uh, public colleges were getting so much more expensive, mm -hmm. um, you know, after a generation. And, and I think, you know, a lot of the statistics that you see, you know, you can look at, uh, oh, this huge percentage increase in. Uh, the tuition, the huge percentage increase in fees, the various other, co you know, dorm costs, things like that, textbook prices and whatever, like all of these things are, are adding mm -hmm. up over time. And it's not anywhere near proportional to like the other changes, like, you know, just natural inflation in the economy yeah, or, or anything like that, or, you know. Or, or, yeah. Or to look at like income growth is not keeping up. <laughs> Certainly pace. not. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the thing, you know, a lot of us joke about those those millennials are killing things headlines. And it's it's like some of it is low wages, but a lot of it is that it's now going into all these debt payments, mm -hmm. you know, which is just not helpful for being able to engage in consumer spending, um, you know, and we've seen that it's greater than the credit card debt, but then a lot of people are also in credit card debt. So there's mm -hmm. a lot going on there uh, as well. Um, but uh, I was starting to say, I think that the, the public uh, disinvestment gets less attention than like some of the like more obviously seedy sort of nemesis narratives of these uh, for-profit colleges and the yeah. blatant scam ones. Yeah. Uh, that's the other thing too, is that, you know, like most, and they are total scams. right. Most of the people aren't going to those, but a lot of the debt is uh, not, you know, the actual number of, of uh, student loan holders is overwhelmingly not from a for-profit university. If I remember the stats correctly, but the actual like bulk of the money that is owed, uh, does come from those that's where you get those really really high above the median figures that you'll sometimes hear of someone saying you know well the median is this but i have many many times more than that uh that is often from one of those places um you wanted to talk yeah, a little bit about that at, at some of the statistics oh yeah so in 2000 there was only one for-profit institution among the 25 colleges and universities where students held the most student loan debt and in 2014 there were 13 with the university of phoenix topping the list and that the amount of debt owed by those attending for-profit colleges has grown from $39 billion in 2000 to $229 billion in 2014. They're basically scams, and yeah. on top of it, people, their debt is going to balloon even more because they paid a lot for nothing to begin with and then have yeah. nothing to be able to get a job that can pay it off. Yeah, and, and you also have the kind of the long history, uh, common pattern with for-profit colleges of, of preying on people people of color or even preying on returning veterans uh, because veterans have a funding stream attached to them. Yeah, there's a lot of those stories where they're like recruiting very aggressively from veterans because they know that the federal government will cough mm -hmm. up money, you know, for them uh, and they don't really care about the well-being of these veterans. They just want to get that uh, money. And it, I mean, it, you know, that that's the thing, too. The Republicans always harping on about various, you know, scams to defraud the government programs of various money. And like it always goes back to those racist 1980s, like welfare queen yeah. type things. And in reality, it's always these type of corporations yeah. that are engaging in this stuff. Um, you know, so obviously we're looking at billions and billions in in debt uh, owed to these scam colleges, but also there's this public disinvestment and problem. Uh, there's a lot of different things that are going on here. A lot of things we could mm -hmm. be talking about. Um, you know, these these huge increases in tuition and spikes and everything. Um, and and there's obviously like a, a pretty big drag. I think most people understand that fundamentally on the economy like it's harder to start a family it's harder to buy a house it's harder to do all these things when you uh a have to make these huge debt payments b you uh are dealing with the credit problems associated mm -hmm. with if you had trouble paying off these uh loan payments uh and then finally of course is the thing that most of us are aware of in, in our age demographic which is that since uh 2005 or so uh the bankruptcy laws in the country have said that like mm -hmm. You have to pay off student loans. You can maybe defer it sometimes, but you can't default on it, um, which there's a lot of, like, the rich and powerful are able to default on all kinds of loans. Cough, President Trump. Cough, cough. <laughs> Um, but that that is not an avenue that is afforded to, you know, these veterans, these uh, 
single parent yeah. moms that you know the these uh african-american and latino kids who were you know first in their family to go mm-hmm. to college but then didn't really have a way to pay for it uh and got saddled with something you know even if they went to a legitimate uh school like there's all sorts of these struggles that are going on mm-hmm. and you know anyway it's obviously and a bad situation like we're we're aware that it's a bad situation and then one one thing just in, not just it's uh, the role it plays in kind of inhibiting current day spending, so people can't do, but and the kind of the economic impacts of that, both on the individual and the economy at large. It also prevents people from saving and right. giving, uh, saving and accruing wealth over time, because, and particularly when it comes to saving, when we, when pensions aren't really a thing anymore, that becomes important to be able to like know that you'll have money when you retire years in the future. Right. And that's obviously if it's getting eaten up by these debt service payments, that's not going to work out very well for the long term. Um, So we've obviously covered a lot of the problems, Mm -hmm. but I think a lot of people are pretty aware of those problems. Um, The interesting thing, though, is that you had included some polling on Mm -hmm. sort of my question, which was, um, you know, is there a possibility that we could cancel these debts and just say this is a huge drag on the economy. It's holding everyone back. It's mm-hmm. holding the whole country back. We've got to get rid of this, regardless of how we got into the mess. Although I think that the regulatory shortfalls mean that there's a clear case that the government is partly responsible mm-hmm. for, you know, letting the problem get to where it got to. Um, in in general, it seems like it'd be a good idea to cancel this. But how do how do people feel about that? Even before we get into the the, the technical details of what that might look like. Yeah, and there was an interesting poll recently. It was um, it was from last month. Uh, I was reading about it in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, and it's basically polled people on the statement, quote, I believe President Trump's Department of Education should forgive all federal student, loan, or all federal student debt to help the economy. 42% agreed, 37% disagreed, and then 21% neither agreed nor disagreed. I think that's a huge starting point, like exactly. to already start right off the bat with an idea that's not really being discussed and people instinctively, 42% yeah. of them saying, yeah, I agree that we should forgive all federal student debt. I mean, I figure, you know, if one of these uh, liberal think tank uh, Democrat centristy people had yeah. put a poll together like this, they probably would have had some sort of compromise, like forgive some federal debt or, you know, reduce it by half or give some tax credits, credits. or whatever, you know. And and this is this is a forgive it tra- only for STEM students. <laughs> I bet they find some way to build a business tax credit into it. Yeah, man. But let's let yeah, Paul. Let's not get into a whole discussion about uh, the the push for STEM education because that's probably <laughs> playing a role in this uh, situation as well. But yeah, and so one thing was interesting in the polling is so women were much more favorable to that idea than men, and one thing that. Uh, so women are going to college at higher rates, and so they end up, they're often going to be the ones taking on lots of debt, and as we noted before, end up, are often targeted by for-profit colleges on uh, their predatory practices. And p- obviously people who are 18 to 49 were more favorable toward it than people who are about 50. And unsurprisingly, Clinton voters were more favorable toward it than, than Trump voters. And people who didn't vote were about just as almost as were favorable toward it. See, now that's a key point, right? Because we're part of this. Yeah. When we talk about these these big ideas on this show, part of it is we want to figure out how do we reach the non-voters and get them actually interested in coming out to yeah. vote. You know, and like I said, there was, I think there were a lot of people who were kind of understandably a little frustrated, younger voters who had been really enthusiastic about Obama in 2008 because he was making a lot of promises regarding student issues and youth issues. And then there were a few minor things like the federalization of student loans. Mm-hmm. And then that was about it. Like it did, there wasn't a lot of follow through on those specific yeah. issues of relevance. And then so there was a drop off in 2012 yeah. and then a further drop off in 2016. If this is something that can reach some of these non-voters, especially younger voters, although, again, like let's be clear here that some of this is parents that are stuck with these having yeah. to pay these debts for their kids or they're just or, middle-aged you yeah know, or i mean students some of, of any these, age. Yeah, some of these folks are now in their 40s that have had student debt for yeah. a while like some of this or they stuff go to is, college yeah. in their like in their 30s or 40s or grad school law yeah. school any of these things yeah uh paul yeah you also hear you also hear a lot about like i mean 
you know, not a lot, but horror stories about like kids who have died and then their parents are settled mm-hmm. with loans afterwards. So like the loans like continue even after they passed away. See, that's just brutal. I feel like there should yeah. be, it should be like the system when a, if a medieval king died, then all his debts were canceled. Like all the, all the poor bankers in Genoa, they, all their, their loans would be, they would just disappear into thin air when the, when the king died. Treat everyone as good as, as well as a medieval king. Well, I think most of them died at like probably of bad. Treat everyone better like than yeah. a medieval king. <laughs> um, the lesson here is that feudalism is better than capitalism. <laughs> So, so we've got this polling that says, in in principle, in theory, that people would be interested in in doing a you know a, some sort of a loan forgiveness program. Um, so there's there's two points that we now arrive at, right? Uh, one is the political aspect of it, and one is the policy aspect mm-hmm. of it. Before we get into the political aspect, let's just talk quickly about the policy aspect, uh, which basically boils down to can we afford it? Um, short answer, yes. But Jonathan, you've got the details on that. Yeah, so the well, the information I found comes from Josh Hoxie, the student debt expert at, for the Institute for Policy Studies. And so I think, Bill, you might have mentioned this number before, that there's about kind of around $1.2, 1. $1.3, $1. $1.4 trillion of student loan debt. And that, so you have the total household wealth in the country is $60 trillion. And of, say, of that, uh, the top one percent owns forty-two percent, so that's twenty-five trillion dollars is the the wealth by the, of the top one percent. If you put a ta- a one percent tax on the wealth of the top one percent, you'd have about double what you would need for that. So as and so yeah, so a one percent, some sort of a special one percent tax that might even be a one-time tax, uh, uh, wealth tax on uh, the the top one percent over t- uh, yeah, wealthy over, people, people over ten uh, years. over ten years. And it's yeah. and it's a striking thing when you look at, to look at those numbers, and also at the same time when you see Republican tax proposals, that they throw away far more money than that. Right. And, and the article that I was reading was particularly looking at uh, Jeb Bush's, where that that are uh, quote unquote reasonable, moderate, like less terrible of a Republican than Trump, Jeb Bush, uh, that his tax proposal would have cost the government three point four trillion dollars over ten years. So it's about three times what it would cost to wipe student debt. There's a, there's an older episode of this of this show actually that that dives into a lot of the um, the issue of uh, how tax cuts and, are not treated in the same way as spending, but mm-hmm. basically they're tax expenditures. The government is giving yeah. away money in the form of not collecting, collecting it. it. It's it's uh, as though that they're collecting the money and handing it right back to right. you. Right, and and that tends to disproportionately usually favor either the actual wealthy or the like upper middle class mm-hmm. homeowners, things like that. There's a lot of those uh, home-related programs that, that are tax credits or tax cuts. Um and those always add up to enormous amounts of money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the the statistics that I don't have them in front of me, but we talked at great length in this episode, which was probably in 2014 or 2015. Um, I'm sure you can find it at arsenalfordemocracy.com. But we talked about basically that, like, there were these very small, useless tax cut programs that, you know, a fraction of it could fund all of the, you know, food stamps and welfare benefits and everything, anything you could think of on that sort of end. Um, so it's, it's like you said, I mean, they come up with these, these technical wonky tax plans, whether it's the Jeb Bush plan or the Ryan budget or whatever, mm-hmm. that just have these enormous tax cuts that is giving away revenue far exceeding whatever the cost of this is. And like I said at the top, I think that this would probably be coupled with some sort of a free college uh, program because they don't, you wouldn't want this to recur essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they're going to, if they're going to pass a student debt forgiveness, they're going to also include some sort of a mitigation plan. We hope unlike with wall street, uh, once you do a bailout like this, exactly. you're going to want to keep it from reoccurring. Um, and so you'd need a little bit more money for that, but that's also not an expensive program either. We've done the numbers on that. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's the great thing, right? So a, a, a relatively small tax, uh, adjustment fund creation, mm-hmm. something like that could easily raise the money, uh, to cancel out, um, the, the 1 trillion plus, uh, in student loan debt, um, and so that kind of covers the policy angle. Um, let's uh, uh, talk briefly in our remaining time in this segment about the political angle. Um, you've summarized this as good for the economy. 
It's yeah. good for the economy. Yeah. So the businesses end up declaring bankruptcy all, all, like, all of the time and void themselves of debt and then they become successful. And we treat them as being very successful and we treat the businessmen as very successful d- d- despite that fact. And then as you noted before, that student loan is one, debt is one of the most difficult things to get rid of. So it, it just seems kind of commonplace if we're allowing those people that we deem to be the most successful ones of society to, to get rid of their debt, why not do that for everyone else too? Yeah, and I think that, like we've talked about, there would be uh, a lot more consumer spending happening. I think a lot of people would be more happy yeah. to get married as well because there's whole issues there about merging your debts if you get married. That's yeah. like got to be a concern for some people because um, sometimes that's advantageous, but many times it's not advantageous or it's uh, kind of a rolling the dice. Yeah. And so if you're a conservative who's anxious about declining marriage levels or like people waiting longer to get married, like it seems like yeah. this would be something, you know, this kind of thing, you'd want to push that. Also, people can have children buy homes all these things that that many many americans claim that they think is a a good public policy goal whether or not you think it is is a different matter yeah to the same point in terms of things that politicians love to celebrate would be small businesses yeah that and it's it's pretty hard to start a small business business if you're saddled with debt like that's that's the, the one general thing thing that like you end up seeing that scandinavian countries tend to have a higher rates of entrepreneurship because you don't because you have a stronger welfare state there. So if you don't have huge debt burdens, if you don't have constantly like having to shell out huge sums of money for education and health care, you have the ability to take risks I think elsewhere. A, I think a lot of this speaks to a sort of left uh, vision of, of freedom that differs from the right's vision of freedom, mm-hmm. uh, of basically saying that we should be freeing people from pointless debts that they don't need to be under we should be freeing them from you know the bonds of employer-based insurance to have Mm -hmm. a stable insurance that they have no matter where they go all these things allow you to go out live your life spend money on things and start businesses and whatever you know these these are things that the end goal is shared i guess uh, unless your goal is just to really mess with the labor market and have a so that the employers have all the bargaining power at major businesses, which is some yeah. conservatives' goals, absolutely. But in general, many people would would share these goals. Uh, and the question is, how do you get there? And we're saying that you get there by liberating people from these things. That's how you yeah. get to freedom. Yeah, but you guys aren't thinking about how many jobs that Navient creates, so. <laughs> You have to take that into account too. I mean that that would be that would be one of the main arguments against something like this. I mean it would be, you know, you kind yeah. of see the same thing with universal healthcare. It'd be, you know, oh well, the student, you know, debt generators are uh, are you know creating so many jobs. I mean, Sally May has a basically a, a you know debt collection plant in in Newark, yeah, or, or Newcastle or something like that. So I yeah, I, I, I mean, haven't been following the details. But I know that they're back in the news again, and and that's been an issue. In addition to banks, obviously, the debt collectors, uh, you know, at, at Sally May and all these other sort of operations are, have a stranglehold over Delaware politics. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest. I can be honest because I'm not there anymore. Um, you know, and, and that leads to things like Joe Biden as a senator pushing mm-hmm. through this uh, horrible bankruptcy law. MBNA. Yeah, that gets, you know, prevents people from discharging these debts. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? Paul's right. Like, the, there are liberals who are arguing against nationalizing health insurance on the grounds that it will put paper pushers out of work within the corporate bureaucratic structure, which... To that, I say, like, yeah, there will be some reduction in paperwork, but there will still be a lot of people who can get jobs doing paperwork stuff within the large government bureaucracy that replaces the private sector bureaucracy. And on top of that, that is, like, the most transferable skill that you can have, right? If you go train to be, like, a miner or some very yeah. highly technical factory worker or whatever, you may have some difficulty switching jobs if a plant closes. But if you're, you know, debt collection operation or whatever closes uh or your student loan processing or your health insurance thing, like that you can get another job as a white collar professional who sits at a desk just to be brutally honest about it there's also the so i'd say two other things that to always keep in mind when we talk about like what will happen to said people in a transition is one if there is an assumption that you are freeing people to spend their money on other things that money would presumably have some type of like has to be spent somewhere and that the spending of money helps create jobs 
the other the other thing is that in in pretty much in most left frameworks, a lot of other things we'd like to spend a lot of mon- more money on too. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I mean. Uh, it's you never hear the you never hear you, you very rarely hear the left arguing for like let's just close all of these things down and close down the entire military and then not do anything with yeah. the money like no they want to spend the money on other things that will also create a lot of jobs because uh, government spending is also a form of yeah. a, you know aggregate demand in the economy that creates jobs um, Rachel I want to go to you for your closing thoughts on this segment before we move to the next topic. Uh, I just want to say that what you have all all have said about how um, how this this debt has dragged our generation down. It's just so they uh, pundits like to blame us for killing all these industries, but it, when we physically can't spend money because it doesn't exist, that just does create that generational drag. And I feel very lucky because I was able to buy a house after I discharged my debt because I, I was able to accumulate savings and I'm still am able to accumulate savings and do things like buy a car or uh, fix my teeth uh, to kind of touch on what the next topic is going to be. So I, I have the chance to kind of reach those milestones, those adult, quote unquote, adult milestones that previous generations were able to achieve in their early mid twenties, so it it it's kind of silly to denigrate us for not being able to achieve those milestones without giving us the means to do so. Very well put, and again, just to like underscore this, this is not that expensive to cancel out all of the student debt in this country. It's a political win, especially with non-voters, and the government has an obligation to cancel all U.S. student debt burden at this point even if you set aside all the great arguments in favor of doing it just on the benefits of it, simply because the government failed to regulate these scam for-profit entities and provide any sort of oversight. The government failed to properly manage the process of distributing these loans in the first place, and the government failed to provide the public investment necessary to give people options that did not require taking on huge amounts of debt to go to college. This is an obligation that also doesn't cost that much money and will have enormous economic dividends. We should absolutely be putting this on the table in upcoming election platforms to cancel all of the U.S. student debt burden. And with that, we're going to go to a quick break from ArsenalForDemocracy.com and WVUD. When we return, we're talking about universal dental care, another thing that the left wants to spend money on. Mm -hmm. So we'll be right back in just a moment. You're still listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Still in studio with me is Jonathan. On the line from Idaho is Rachel. And on the line from North Carolina is Paul. Um, We're going to talk now about dental care. There hasn't really been, as far as we could tell when we were doing the research for this, there hasn't been a lot of floating of proposals in the United States for some sort of a universal dental care system, whether it be part of like a single payer health care or separate from it or whatever. It just hasn't really come up that much. Um, but it is obviously a huge concern. Uh, dental care is a very important uh, concern with human health uh, in, in, in this country and everywhere else. Um, and it can have enormous impacts on people's uh, health and also just quality of life and everything else. Um, so it's really important to talk about it. And I think a lot of us uh, also in our peer group kind of struggle with the, you know, how do we pay for dental care? Uh, how do we access dental care? That sort of thing. Um, but it has often remained separate and not just in the United States from the rest of uh, healthcare. You know, it's sort of a different uh, discipline. I'm sure there's various historical origins of all kinds for that. Um, but it as a result of that sort of bifurcation, for some reason, the policy has also been uh, pretty separated. Um, Rachel, you did a lot of research for this topic. Where, where should we start on this? You know, maybe talk about why this is such an important issue in, in general before we get into policy and programs. Well, despite the false dichotomy between uh, dental care and health care, dental care is health care. Oral disease has been linked to diabetes, uh, heart disease, cardiovascular problems, and toothaches that kill. There's been like two big well-known cases. There was a 12-year-old boy from Maryland named Diamante Driver 
Um, he had a tooth infection that spread to his brain. Um, his family didn't have dental benefits, and he had to be rushed to the hospital for emergency brain surgery, but he died anyway. Something that would have been so simple just to treat his his tooth, his infected tooth, it caused his death. And also, um, another case was a single father, 24 years old, Kyle Willis. He rushed to the emergency room with a toothache. He got a prescription for painkillers, which cost $3, and antibiotics, which cost $27. He couldn't afford both, so he went for the painkillers, which obviously left his infection untreated, and he also got uh, a brain infection and died. So treating it as a separate issue, it it just doesn't make any sense when it, it causes so many bad health outcomes, but it's hard to get dental coverage over 40% of the population does not have dental insurance. Um, Medicaid helps some, but there aren't, I believe, only 10% of dentists accept Medicaid insurance. And if you, if you, even if they do, you, you often have to wait weeks to get seen because they're just trying to shove you in where paying customers or customers with private insurance don't often see the dentist. So you're just kind of crammed into the cracks, and it's very easy to to just not go to the dentist, and it, which causes these problems. Now, you mentioned uh, that Medicaid is only accepted by like 10% of dentists, but even mm-hmm. then it's not a consistent feature of Medicaid, right? Um, Paul, you were looking right. at some of the numbers there. You want to run those by us? Yeah, sure. So basically, uh, you know, this website that I found uh, says that Medicaid pays for comprehensive dental care in 32 states, but there's also... Um, you know, it, there's variations between the states, like only 18 states only 18 states only cover emergency services and nothing more. Um, and that, that ranges from like conservative states like Kansas and Mississippi to like Hawaii. Um, and uh, there's like 27 states that cover preventative services. So there's really a lot of variation on uh, the, the one thing that is consistent is apparently uh, children who are on the Medicaid get free dental care. But for adults, it's there's a lot of uh, a, like a range of, of services that you get if you're on Medicaid. Uh, now, Rachel, um, did the Affordable Care Act touch on dental care in any way? Um, I believe it, it just expanded that 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 care for children, but it, it didn't mandate that adults carry dental coverage at all. So it's it's not really addressing the issue, especially in states that did not expand Medicaid, which quite a few did not. And I know in Massachusetts that everyone, not just Medicaid, but, you know, people buying private insurance or whatever, um, they they have tied it together somewhat with health care, but again, only for children. So there's a mandate that you have mm-hmm. to purchase it for your, you know, dependent children, um, dental insurance. But uh, even then, I mean, it, like if you're talking about Medicaid or the exchange, it's, it's not good. Uh, I went through the process, as we've talked about before, of signing up for health insurance. Um, and I looked at the dental plans that were available to me as an adult and it was just, I mean, it was bad. It, it, it was, you, yeah, you didn't have to pay that much, but you also didn't really get anything out of it. And it was just going to come out to be cheaper to, you know, pay cash, um, for various things that I needed rather than, uh, you know, wasting my money effectively on this insurance that wasn't going to really, uh, get me much of anything. Um, and so that's sort of a problem. Plus in Massachusetts, they have a problem where like, it's not mandated for adults, but they haven't given you the option to opt out of that during the online signup process. So I had to call like a help number and be like, can you skip ahead of this page for me so I can finish buying my health insurance? Um, because I don't want this dental insurance and it's not required. And I felt like that was just kind of abusive to consumers, but that's a whole kind of separate issue. Um, Jonathan, you wanted to jump yeah. in here on something. So it's a step that's a little bit old now, but I was, I would presume that the trend is largely still in place that in 2007 the new york state dental journal found that while only one-tenth of general physician costs were paid out of pocket nearly half of all dental costs were settled were out of pocket costs from the patients Uh, particularly because i think this goes to your point that a lot of dental plans aren't very good and so they do they won't they won't cover the various things that you might get they're not going to be a lot of them don't cover fillings or crowns or other big ticket items and and that's the thing too right there's a as you're saying there's a lot of these costs that are being picked up out of pocket by consumers but these are pretty big ticket items um paul you wanted to comment specifically on how big ticket some of these costs can be yeah so uh my own personal story with this is when i was a when I was 12, I was uh, playing soccer in gym class and I uh, got tripped up and fell and fell basically tooth first uh, and broke two teeth. Um, and I got crowns on both of those teeth. Uh, and one of the crowns like exists to this day, but the other one broke. Uh, so I would probably have to get two implants. 
And dental insurance does not cover implants. Apparently, it is a cosmetic surgery, and it's right in the front of my mouth. So I would look like an idiot if I didn't <laughs> if I didn't have like two of my front teeth. Uh, but it's not covered under that. Apparently, bridges are covered under it, but bridges can also you know break in in ten years or whatever. Implants are supposed to be like a forever solution to this problem. So, what, uh, what kind of price get, tags were you looking at on this? Yeah, so I've been to like three or four different dentists in North Carolina and at least one in, in New Jersey. And the prices I'm looking at range from like 4000 to like $6,000 for, for two implants, um, which is just nothing I can pay right now. Uh, so I'm sort of looking at like bridges and stuff like that because dental insurance actually does pay for it. But right now I'm I'm uninsured when it comes to dental insurance. I mean, it's, it's basically a discount plan. So you can just like space out payments for things like cleanings and stuff over time. Um, it's, it's nothing great. Uh, so yeah, this is, this is definitely a huge problem. Rachel, you wanted to talk about sort of the international comparisons, uh, especially some of the major, uh, healthcare systems that are often brought up in comparison to the United States. Um, how do they deal with dental care? So, um, in Canada, dental care is covered. However, there is a lot of, of, uh, restrictions to that, well, uh, barriers to that, uh, such as access. Um, a lot of Canada is rural. A lot of people just can't afford to travel to, to go see a dentist, um, especially the native peoples, um, First Nations, Inuit uh, communities. They just often don't have access to a dentist. So uh, despite having it covered, there still are a lot of barriers. Um, same with the UK. The NHS does cover a lot of dental coverage, especially for children and um, low-income people. But again, there's that lack of access. Uh, we think of of big cities like London or Manchester or whatnot, but there are a lot of tiny villages and hamlets that just don't have access to a dentist. So despite getting it paid for, there are often still systemic barriers that, that restrict access. Um, I looked up uh, Germany as well, which has kind of a hybrid um, private-public uh, system. Um, they actually have one of the best uh, ratio of um, dental professionals to citizens. And uh, in the last year, 80% of Germans have um, visited a dentist, which is phenomenal compared to the U.S., I, I believe is about 40% have accessed dental care in the past year so. I guess uh, Germany probably um, having that higher ratio definitely helps a lot with access and stuff. So I think that's something that we need to expand as well. Like we, there are a lot of communities in the U.S. as well that that just don't have that access to dental care. And there has been uh, mention of, of ways to expand that, that coverage. Um, and one way is to create kind of an analog to the nurse practitioner um, model that we see in in quote unquote regular healthcare, um, they would be like a, a mid tier uh, professional that would be able to provide some of the services like fillings and cleanings and stuff that that uh, are kind of easier that aren't are non surgical procedures that um, would greatly improve the lives of patients. And I mean that speaks to a sort of an issue that is. Uh brought up a lot in the uh, health care, health insurance type debates that like, oh, if you give everyone, you know, this free or whatever, uh, an ostensible way of paying for their health care, that there's suddenly going to be this, you know, total demand on the services that is completely outstripped by the capacity to provide it. You know, there's not enough nurses, not enough doctors, uh, not, not enough nurse practitioners. And it's possible that a similar thing would happen with dental care being made much more uh, financially accessible, um, you know, that there would be some sort of lines and wait times and things like that. And like you said, we see that with, with Medicaid dental coverage. Uh, however, the answer in all of these cases is train and hire more mm -hmm. people to do those jobs, you know, build more yep. facilities, that sort of thing. That That's the answer for all of them, Jonathan. It's what the people working at Navient and, and Sally May can do. <laughs> right. <laughs> They can all become dentists. Yeah, uh, the the dental equivalent of nurse practitioners coming to you in 2020. Um, so that's sort of like some of the peer systems that we're looking at. Uh, we've talked a little bit about kind of Medicaid and some of the issues and challenges there. Um, 
again, we're saying we need to look at this as very integrated with the health care issue. It's it's very bizarre that it's not been uh, applied the same way. I think it was a huge missed opportunity for probably no real reason uh, that it wasn't dealt with in the Affordable Care Act, particularly other than these little minor things. Um, I mean, have have we seen any indication that this is on the horizon to deal with it in a, in a comprehensive and integrated way? I know, Paul, you were talking a little bit before we were recording about California, just that like at least there was some sort of acknowledgement there, although I guess was it just related to the staffing issues or what? Yeah, so they they did mention it uh, in the plan apparently. Um, and yeah, it, it, I think the staffing issue was sort of the main thing to deal with that. But I, I wasn't, you know, I like I said before, I wasn't sure if they had like a way to, like if they like calculated the cost or whatever for that. One thing that's just interesting when it comes to dental care versus the, the rest of healthcare that are strangely treated as separate it's kind of the, the historical processes by which that ended up happening. Because dental care was originally associated with kind of what the, your like barber surgeons would do. Kind of hence the kind of, as we were talking before, treatment as though it's purely more of a cosmetic thing. That, and so standard, standard quote unquote physicians look down upon dental, like dental work. So that when dentists first, so that, Back in the early 1800s, there were a group of dentists who wanted to have a like a dental college within. I believe this is in the University of Maryland system, and they were like, with the medical school, and they're like, no, we don't we don't view dentists as real doctors. So they started their own dental school, and then over time, you develop a strong professional identity, and then that professional identity just like just like the AMA has lobbied against the expansion of healthcare many times, so did the, so did the dentist associations. Yeah. I, I would imagine, though, uh, given the numbers that we're looking at in terms of like the Medicaid access problems, obviously, if you went to some sort of a single payer system, either separately or integrated, that dealt with dental care, uh, you would basically force them to take it, more or less. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be this huge customer base that most people would be in. They would have to start accepting those mm-hmm. patients in much greater numbers, just like with Medicare, you know, that forces a lot of people to accept that, although sometimes you get doctors opting out of that. For sure, that's a persistent problem that we've talked about before on the show, uh, at least in some areas. Um, you know, so that creates various access issues, but you can also use Medicare as a cudgel to, you know, integrate hospitals and things like that, uh, in the 1960s. So there, there is power if the government chooses to use it, Mm -hmm. uh, against some of these, these pressure groups or whatever. Um, unfortunately I feel like we, we're kind of ending on a weird note here because we don't really have a specific proposal in the way that a lot of these other segments that we've done in recent weeks on the show, we've had like a pretty concrete thing to Mm -hmm. propose, um, and, and, and as far as we were finding, there really wasn't a whole lot of stuff jumping out in terms of like specific proposals to deal with this. Um, you know, it came up at least in some context in California, but, but like in terms of a national single payer dental system or something like that, um, possibly even, you know, to deal with the supply issues, maybe a publicly supplied dental care, as opposed to just paying for coverage with these, uh, private practitioners. Yeah, we're going to have to kind of leave it as a question mark for now. But I think we're saying that it needs to be a comprehensive universal system that applies to everyone and gives everyone the same opportunities financially and access wise to dental care, and that it needs to be dealt with at the same time and alongside with the uh, <laughs> normal or regular health care, so to speak, because it is part of health care. Mm-hmm. Rachel, thank you so much for looking into uh, so many of the details on this topic. Uh, thanks for having me, Bill. Paul, thank you for being here to talk about both of these issues. Uh, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks a lot for having me. And Jonathan, thanks for being here in studio. Thanks for having me on. That's all the time we have this week. Tweet us your comments at AFD Radio or email afdradio at gmail.com. The show is available for download from arsenalfordemocracy.com on Wednesdays. You can also hear it on the air in Delaware from 91.3 FM WVUD, WVUD HD1, and WVUD HD2 Newark every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can get additional commentary at arsenalfordemocracy.com daily, as well as links to articles discussed today. From my studio in Newton, Massachusetts, I'm Bill Humphrey, and I approve this message. Good night. Thank you.